Hi, everybody. My name is Kent Davis, and I'm an alcoholic. I'd love to say it's an honor, privilege, a joy, and a pleasure to be here, but uh, I got invited because uh, I'm Debbie's husband. And, uh, I must, I'd like to thank everybody. I really would, but... Uh, So it is nice to be second. I, 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 don't have, uh, I don't have to have debated what I get to, to comment on Debbie's talk, but uh, it is nice to have the last word. <laughs> I've learned through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that if you're married and have a good marriage and you're a man, to have the last word, all you have to remember is, yes, ma'am. <laughs> it works. Um, Lori told me I didn't have to tell my story as long as I talked about Debbie the whole hour. <laughs> it is fun to be Debbie's husband, I'll tell you. <laughs> when we got together, some pillow talk one morning was, uh, so honey, what's your favorite tradition? And she says, well, I have three. <laughs> Depends on what, they, what you want to talk about. And I, I said, well, do you have a favorite concept? Yes, I do. And, uh, you know, it's so strange. We do. <laughs> Each, well, we both had the same concept, which was nice, too. But the point is, we are AA geeks. We, 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 we grew up in AA in totally different places, uh, different sponsors, different chains, uh, different lines, and all the rest of that. Yet, it's so parallel to see that her opinions and involvement in Alcoholics Anonymous was just like mine. Um, <clears throat> a lot of people have asked me, how do you have a good relationship? Because I've had two incredible marriages. Uh, obviously, my marriage to Debbie is wonderful. And, uh, you know, what did you do to do that, to, to get that to, to come about so perfect? And I, I told them, it's, it's very simple. You know, if God put you two together, it's going to be fine, uh, unless you screw it up. And we've done our share of trying to do that. but. As long as we go along with what he has in mind for us, you know, we do just fine. The other day, there was a, I was working on a little project on the sleigh, and uh, I didn't know when I'd be done with the sleigh, and my wife comes out, and she has something to remind me to do, and, uh, and I'm pretty well consumed with this sleigh, and I don't know when I'm going to get done, and I'm thinking, well, if I just kind of imply to her that I don't have time to do it, Maybe she'll go ahead and agree to fulfill that, but she's pretty adamant in this case that she would like me to do. And I've got a sponsee standing there next to me, and uh, <laughs> so I, I've done my answer back to her. I love playing with words, so all of my words were true and honest, but it was real deceptive that I really did not want to do this, and I was hoping that she would, and she was adamant that. No, this is your job. You're going to do it. And so when she left, she says, okay, I heard you. And I said, I said, I agreed with you. I didn't say I was going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and my sponsee turned to me after she had left, and he says, that looked like an argument. <laughs> <laughs> but you guys were having way too much fun. <laughs> And that is kind of our relationship. It's a good time we have. So th those of you that came to hear a bit about Debbie and I, it really is a fun time. We, we uh, are very active in service. Uh, 
I would say uh, it'd be nice to uh, have more time together than we do, but uh, you know, the great blessing is that we have been given so much that we both feel so motivated to give it away, and that's what we try and do. Um, I don't know who's more active, and she actually has a, a belt that she wears around the house. I have a picture of this if you want to see it. <laughs> she has two phones on the belt, and then she's tied into one or the other, and she can actually unplug it from one and into the other. She doesn't really talk on two at the same time, but uh, I swear she's on the phone more than I am. But. <laughs> When it's your turn to talk, Laurie, we'll give you <laughs> But this is my microphone today. <laughs> Yesterday, you know, just another example of our relationship. Yesterday, Debbie actually set up the, the joke. She said, tomorrow you get to hear his story, right? And uh, so what I really want to say is when you go to the library, you always go to that section on his story, not her story. <laughs> so here's my story. <laughs> my name is Kent Davis and I am an alcoholic. I was not an alcoholic when I got here. I got here by mistake. Uh, I. I didn't know I had a problem. Well, I did have a problem, but it sure wasn't alcohol. I got here, uh, I had met a gal online, and uh, she was in New Orleans, and I was in San Francisco Bay Area, and uh, she asked me what I did for a living, and I explained that, you know, bad luck and circumstances beyond my control, and insensitive people who just don't understand a guy like me had made it possible for me to be out of work for, well, I was in between jobs, I said, <laughs> about three years, and so <laughs> she suggested I go back to work, and for me to go back to work, I had to get permission from the state of California. And uh, I went before this body, there was like 17 people on this panel, and I was down there, you know, and they were all looking at me and telling me, there was just the, 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 uh, the head of that was a little short guy, uh, I've since made amends to him, uh, but he, he tried to explain to me that I had a problem with alcohol, and I, I was trying to explain to him, I filled out all your paperwork, you know, page after page, and, you know, I got through bankruptcy and divorce court and child custody, and, I mean, my God, if you had gone through the stuff that I had gone through, you know, you would, you would have some clue that the only way you can do that is with alcohol. That was my solution, it was not my problem. And he was trying to convince me I had a problem. And I was, you know, my story can best be summed up in, I think I'm on the cutting edge of modern thought. This is... <laughs> But the truth of the matter is, you know, if it's going my way, it's probably not going the right way. <laughs> so I have this world, that's the world I live in. That is, that's who I am. You know, if it's, if it's, if it's going Ken's way, it's, it ain't going right. 
And, and I, I became convinced of that. And it was one of the parts of my life when I got here, which was the key element. I had, uh, had the opportunity, I had a, a, a codependent uh, family. Uh, nobody in my family but me had a problem with alcohol. So uh, everybody was trying to, my dad always wanted to have a college education and he'd go to any length to make it possible for me. And I uh, took advantage of that. Uh, I always say it was that uh, through seven colleges and universities and 14 years of, you know, college, <coughs> I, I had a good time. <laughs> Along the way, I had to get a couple of degrees just to make it possible for him to keep supporting me. But I had, I had a free run. I could do it my way, and, and he, would, he would encourage me to, to do that, and I did. I, I mean, I, I, I would uh, get enough good grades to, to look like he's going to do it right this time. Then I'd get into another school, and I'd bury it into the ground. And, and I flunked out of about five of those seven, no, four of the seven colleges that I went to. But... Uh, but I ended up with a degree, a couple of degrees. I got the third degree from my mother, actually. <laughs> so that little short guy finally got upset with me and he said, if you want to go back to work, you're gonna to have to sign this contract. And it was a contract that said you had to go to like three AA meetings a week for five years. And I'm thinking, God, even if you're alcoholic, isn't that overkill? <laughs> well, I had a problem with authority. I don't know if it's noticeable or not, but, you know, it comes with that thinking, you know, if you could understand it from my point of view, you would agree. I'm just sorry that you can't. <laughs> And when you go along with that kind of self-delusion, it is amazing what you can do. <laughs> you can ignore anything and everyone and go about doing it your way. Uh, the only problem is that, like I said, you know, if it isn't going the way Kent thinks it should go, it's probably going the right way. So if you put those two together, and you look at my life, that's what happened. You know, here's this little short guy who wanted the best for me. He wanted me to get into, into recovery and he sent me to Alcoholics Anonymous and I showed up in October of 1987. Uh, I, I actually <clears throat> sat in the back of the room because I, I, I didn't belong here. I mean, I, I only came to get my card signed and uh, I was preceded by my best friend but he had a problem because I could out drink him. I mean, he really needed to be here, but I, because <laughs> uh, he couldn't hold his alcohol like I could. But anyway, so that was my entry. I, uh, I felt this was the first th decent thing I'd done in a long time. Sit here. <laughs> to sit here with you good people. Excuse me. To get to where I was able to surrender, I had to be badly beaten up. 
I ended up losing my family and divorce and child custody and all that. I had my own business. I lived in my office for a while. <clears throat> when they came and closed down my office, I moved into my car. And uh, I had it parked on the back parking lot of the church I belonged to. Well, I used to. <laughs> and uh, I parked out under the tree, out past the parking lot, and uh, one day I came back to my, well, I called it my mobile home, but it wasn't mobile anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but I walked around the corner, and I looked back there at that tree, and there's no car under that tree. And you get a whole new awareness of uh, the definition of homeless. Nobody in my family or friends had wanted me to be around. I had burned up all those bridges. And, and I'm alone. There's nothing left, no place to go. And uh, I had become the kind of person, I had a, uh, two businesses. I had a daytime business and a, and a nighttime business. Uh, the daytime business was, was pretty much legit, and the nighttime business was, uh, was just the opposite. And with the degrees and, the, uh, and where I came from, you know, running, running the scum of life, uh, where I did a lot of damage and got into a lot of places that I, I uh, because, of, because I had degrees in a professional life, <clears throat> people opened doors for me in the illegal life. And, uh, <clears throat> I had, <clears throat> I had, <clears throat> I had the uh, misfortune of uh, getting in contact with this one fellow, and he said, "You know, I'd like to get some stuff, some, import some stuff from uh, from Jamaica." And I said, "Well, let me see what I can do." And I made a couple of phone calls and <clears throat> got a hold of Charlie, and Charlie and I got along real well, famously well. We had such a good time together. And we ended up flying down to uh, to Jamaica, and there's all these brass coming up and taking us around, putting us in the best hotels and showing us one farm or another, and asking us how we'd like to select our crop and, uh, and where's the guy with the money? And uh, so it turns out that uh, I kept giving excuses, like the guy with the money should be here, the guy with the money should be here, and he's not here, you know? And, Finally, they got sick and tired of us and put us on a plane back home. And what, what you don't realize is that if he, if, if, what happened to me was I was so loaded, I forgot to tell the guy with the money to be there. Or <laughs> so I would become the kind of human being that, uh, that I despised. And when, uh, when I was 45 years of age and leaning up against the tire of that car before they towed it, um, you know, I wondered where everybody was. I had no more family, no more friends. I'm celebrating my 45th birthday and uh, got thinking about, <clears throat> you know, I just, <clears throat> I just ruined every good opportunity. I turned every opportunity into uh, a disaster. And that's why I'm sitting here all alone. I got thinking about my kids. You know, I hadn't been a father. I was the one, <laughs> I was supposed to pick him up after school one day. <coughs> mm. 
there in first or second grade and gets out at 2.30 and I was supposed to pick him up and meet him on the curb and but I had to get something done before I could pick them up because it was critical and important. And when I got back there, it was a dark and they're sitting on the, on the uh, curb waiting for dad to pick them up. It must be four hours later after. So I was not much of a dad and knew that, um, that they'd be better off if I was dead. I knew their mother thought I'd be better off if I was dead. <laughs> I'd, had no relationship with my parents except I'd go over there and steal money from my dad. The only time I'd ever go over there was when I didn't have a place to stay or I needed money because I knew I could get into my dad's wallet and get a few 20s and make my what I needed for the day. But when you're living on the street and uh, you do what you need to do to live. And in fact, I still have my, in California we have Safeway. And so I called it my Safeway code. <clears throat> What it amounts to, it's uh, got these big, huge uh, uh, sleeves and uh, two inside pockets, and you could actually put four bottles in there and walk out and pay for a pack of gum or walk out uh, paying for anything, and, and it wouldn't clink, you know. It was wonderful. I, in fact, they had just opened them 24 hours, and I thought they did it for me. <laughs> <laughs> so I wasn't the kind of human being that... Uh, I, I despised who I was. I wanted to die. In fact, the day that I sat there on my 45th birthday, I thought everybody in my life, including me, would be better off if I were dead. And I just kind of walked through death's door and just waiting for it to clang behind me because I'm done. I'm through. It was after that that I met that woman, got into Alcoholics Anonymous, and met you good people. And uh, in my first 30 days, I ran across Nancy. <clears throat> Nancy had 42 years sober at the time, and and uh, she was nice to me. I hadn't anybody nice to me in a long, long time. She asked me how I was doing. How you feeling? You doing okay? What are you dealing with? And Nancy was just so nice to me. I, <clears throat> I wanted Nancy to be my sponsor, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Nancy said, no, men sponsor men, and women sponsor women, and you need him. Well, I thought, nice enough, I'd go ask him. That was a mistake. <laughs> him was uh, not like Nancy, you know. <laughs> he told me to buy a book, and uh, I'm broke. I, I, I'm not making any money. <laughs> I walked over to the table, and on the table... If you opened up all the books, in the front it said, Donated by Red D. And uh, so I had already known it was paid for. I didn't have to buy a book. So I stole my first book. <laughs> <laughs> but I got a book, and so I, you know. <laughs> you have to understand, that's how I think, you know. Like, the rules don't apply. So I got me a book, and he expected me to read the book. We even made an appointment to go up to Tahoe to do a four-step, you know, and I'm thinking, whoa, you know, I'm not even an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting my card signed, that's what I'm saying. And I, I got a monthly report I got to turn in that says I got a sponsor and a sobriety date, and I lied about that. 
for five years. <laughs> anyway, I, I'm doing a four-step, and, and, and he, he, I, I, he wants me to put my resentments down. You know, I'm telling him, like, I'm, I, I'm not that kind of guy. I'm a lover, not a fighter. I don't have <laughs> And he said, well, you might want to put down that ex-wife you've been talking about. <laughs> And I was thinking, I, I would say things in a meeting, you know, like uh, some of the best times at the end of my drinking was coming up with new and creative ways to off my ex, and he actually thought that was a resentment, so. <laughs> anyway. So, uh, I'm, that's about four months into this program, and it was not until a year and two weeks that I listened to Pat Hyde. Pat was standing up in front of the in front of the room and doing what I'm doing, and he was saying, "Well, I heard him say he did." We always argue about what he said because it doesn't matter what I heard Pat say is my story. So <laughs> I heard him say that every time he had gotten into trouble with the law or done something he was so ashamed of, he was loaded, and then he said that he had gotten into trouble in high school and he was loaded. And I thought, well, the only time I ever got in trouble in high school was when we were driving up and down Main Street of town of Richmond and we were throwing water balloons at each other and the police stopped us and took us in. And he said he was loaded and I can remember turning around to the guys in the back seat and telling them, shove the beer cans under the seat. We don't want to get caught for drinking. So I got thinking. But every time I was loaded, I mean, we got, every time I got in trouble, rather, this will date me. This is back in the early 60s. And... Uh, we were out sailing on San Francisco Bay, and we had started early that morning. This was going to be a, one of the uh, uh, wine-tasting days. Uh, I always considered myself a, uh, a party kind of guy, and so we were out having a party with wine. We sailed out of Tiburon, a nice area in San Francisco area, and uh, with time had kind of gotten away from us. and. Uh, Somehow, when it, when it gets dark, and it's, it's, it's difficult to sail in the dark. I don't know if anybody of you said <laughs> And all of a sudden we hear, you're within the 200-yard limit. <laughs> and in the dark, you don't know where that's coming from. <laughs> that's when Alcatraz was still occupied. And... <laughs> All of a sudden, it goes thump, <laughs> and we hit Alcatraz and put a hole in the boat, and the Coast Guard had to come and tow us in. <laughs> there was not a drop of alcohol in the boat when they got there. <laughs> Justification, you know. I was in Tijuana, I got thrown in jail in Tijuana. I mean, it had nothing to do with alcohol. I was whizzing in the streets. Uh, 
So, you know, here's a guy who, until he's 46 years of age, has no clue that he's got a problem with alcohol. That is just mind-boggling. Anybody as smart as I am, <laughs> or thinks he's as smart as I am. Anyway, so, my life today is still based on that same thing. You know, I think I've got all the answers, and the truth is, you know, if it's going my way, it probably is not going the right way. And uh, so, finally, when Pat says that, uh, you know, he's alcoholic, I'm sitting there thinking, oh my God, I belong here. This is a year and two weeks of going to meetings. <laughs> I'm unemployable, so I work a day or two a week, but uh, anyway, I uh, started that, the, the time with a, with a sponsor. And I had the kind of sponsor that, uh, that I hope all of you find. Someone who, um, you know, at first I, uh, I would get some feedback from him and I'd think, wonder if that's good advice. <laughs> and so what you do is you ask those people that you know in early sobriety. <laughs> and I'd market his ideas, you know. <laughs> and every now and then to make him think I was a sponsee, I'd call him up with a question, you know, and I'd ask him. <laughs> One of those times I had uh, gone to a new conference. I was involved in a new conference in our area and, and I was married at the time to that gal and that got me into the program. And, uh, and she was a non-alcoholic and uh, really was not real fond of me going to AA. She loved me like you wouldn't believe. She wanted me with her. And every time I went to AA, I had to leave her. She didn't like that. So my going to AA was not her favorite thing to do. I mean, it didn't take her very long to start these, you know, making me own up to what AA is and does. You know, he said, well, this is, a, this is an honest program, or don't you think you ought to call your sponsor, or things like that. I mean, now she took advantage of that, but she sure didn't want me to spend time away from her. But on this day, I was telling her that I was going over to the conference, and she complained again, and I... I called my sponsor and I said, you know, she's complaining again. Uh, don't do something else in Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, what are you doing that for? You already go to too many meetings and involved in too much services it is. And uh, so I called him and told him that. He said, well, Kent, you're going to have to decide what you need to do to stay sober and you're going to have to take responsibility for that. And I interpreted that to mean that I went home and I said to my wife, I said, uh, I'm doing this and this and this and this. Those are my commitments and these are the meetings I go to. How much of the rest of the week do you want? And she said, I'll take it all. Well, I, <laughs> I didn't realize that was a negotiated agreement <laughs> because from that day on, if I was going to take on a new service commitment or not you know, chair another meeting of the week that I wasn't used to, I had to give up something to do that, and, 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 and what happened is my life got better. I actually had an agreement with this woman that I could do this as long as she got that, and I'll be darned, my life got better because I followed the advice of my sponsor.
Well, <clears throat> you do enough of that, not a good idea, but if you do, you, you get this database of either following the direction or not. Uh, if you're like me, you know, you have to have the experience. And so, uh, you know, if you take a few months or a few years of deciding whether, you know, when you follow your own good advice, where does that get you? Versus, you know, was there ever a time when you followed your sponsor's advice that anything, any harm came to you at all, or anyone? And the answer was absolutely not over here. But when you look at yourself and you follow your own good advice, it didn't come up to that. So you, you, start, <laughs> you start listening a little more carefully and asking a few more questions. And uh, as time goes on, I've got this magical kind of life. I, I was too poor to go into treatment, so I never had treatment. All I had was Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and so, you know, in that first year that I was sober, I, I ended up uh, from the scumbag, hopeless monster that I had become. I now have, you know, got married. I'm sleeping with my own wife, and that's the first. <laughs> I got my own car. I mean, I bought my own car. I didn't take another one from my dad. I, I told him four of his cars in the last year of my sobriety. I, I, I've got so much good going on. I've got a business of my own. I, I just can't believe that so much good has come to me. And I don't know that I'm alcoholic yet, but my life sure has gotten better because I'm not drinking. And uh, so <clears throat> I had this incredible guilt that you can't believe that somebody who came from where I came from and has all this good going on, I just felt like I've got to give it to Alcoholics Anonymous because if it wasn't for AA, you know, I wouldn't have any of this. Now, finally, when I became alcoholic, you know, I, I could do it as a, as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, <laughs> And, I, and I, that's how I got started in service, you know, I, I haven't quit. Um, a lot of people say that they've gone through a period where they uh, separated themselves from Alcoholics Anonymous. That's, that's never happened to me. You know, I've always been an active member, always in service, and, uh, and I feel so grateful that, you know, up at least until this point, I, I have never had the opportunity that I had to kind of sneak away from my own time. Um, when you finally get this understanding <clears throat> that if it's going Kent's way, it's probably not going the right way, that goes along with when you have free time, it's probably my worst time. So my worst time is when I've got free time because then I'm going to do something for Kent. <laughs> and so I can, so I, 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 I've never really enjoyed that free time for Kent. Uh, it's never worked out well for me. I've always done something I'm embarrassed or ashamed or it doesn't benefit me or anybody else around me. So I, I do keep myself pretty well scheduled and if I do that then uh, I feel good. I mean if I'm doing something for somebody else I'm, I'm not doing it for Kent and uh, the result is always a whole lot better. So in, for selfish reasons you know I, I stay in service. I end up um, about uh, about conference, what was it, uh, 10 years ago, just a few months before uh, I came to this conference for the first time, which was uh, in, in 2000, and it was in February of that year of 2000. Uh, but September, the prior September, 
first of September, that uh, wife that I had, and it was the kind of relationship that everyone in AA, I was sponsoring a bunch of people by 12 years sober, and, and everybody wanted what I had with her. It was like a, one of those magical relationships that everybody admired and I loved it. And, and uh, first of September, we went to the doctor and the doctor actually went to a, a radiologist and he took an x-ray and he let me in and he told me, she's got cancer in all three lobes of her liver. And man, I knew that that was terminal. I mean, it was like, whoa, what happened? And um, and two months later, she died of that disease. And and that was my reason for living. It was the only good life I had. She was on my four-step under fear, you know. <laughs> When she left, I had another good idea. I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> they came to take her body, and I thought, well, I'm going to take the Vicodin because I've got kidney stones every now and then. So I saved a couple hundred Vicodin. <laughs> Just in case. <laughs> I knew that if I took a couple of Vicodin that, uh, you know, I could make it through that. If you ever have kidney stones in the hospital I went to, you know, if you mark that thing, you're a drug addict or alcoholic, they're going to make sure that you spend two hours suffering in that pain before they give you relief. So I took a couple of Vicodin and I could make it that couple of hours before they gave me what they needed. Anyway, uh, my sponsor found out that I had saved out the, uh, the Vicodin. I don't know how I found that out. And uh, he calls me up and he says, get rid of the Vicodin. And I said, well, how about I take it over to my neighbor? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, no, no, throw it away. I said, well, you know my office manager. I'll give it to her. And he said, angle shooter, do whatever you got to do. And, uh, you know, I, I, I talk about him as being such a, uh, an ogre, but, you know, he was no ogre. He knew exactly how to deal with a guy like me. He knew that if he told me, you know, what to do, I wouldn't do it. But uh, when he said that, angle, shooter, do whatever you got to do, it was like the wake-up call, and I realized that uh, I'm going to have to get rid of these Vicodin. And, and I did, um, a week later. <laughs> but I, you know, when she died, I swear to God, it, it felt as though somebody had reached into my heart and ripped my heart out. And, and I wanted to die. And that was my solution. My solution was to take a couple hundred Vicodin. I'm out of here. It was a good life. Thanks very much. I'm done. Because I could not see beyond that. And uh, that same thing, you know, if it, 
if it's going Kent's way, it's probably not the right way. And I've got this better idea, and I'm always wrong. And uh, I was sitting in the meeting, happened to be one of the clients he was talking at. And I got thinking, you know, I got no reason to live except these yahoos I sponsor, you know? <laughs> What am I going to do with them? <laughs> I figure, well, what I'll do is I'll figure out a way to get rid of all of them. Then I'll do it. <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> Some of those are still with me. And I'd have missed all this. You know, if I had it my way, I'd have missed all this. I showed up here in 2000, and uh, I met Lori, and then met Lori again down in, in, uh, in New Orleans <laughs> a few months later, a couple months later. And uh, there I met Debbie at the same conference. She had come in, and she was talking at the conference, and... Uh, She said that that's when we met officially. That's because, see, I was real close friends with her ex-husband. Uh, so, uh, in fact, he was my grand sponsor at one point. And uh, so I knew a lot about Debbie. <laughs> well, from his story. <laughs> So here I'm sitting across the table from somebody I, I know a lot about. <laughs> and uh, she's pretty serious at that point. And so I poke a little fun in her way. And I enjoyed it. It was fun. And she told me that she was going to give me the name of somebody. I had a history study club at the time. I needed somebody to talk. And she was going to send me his information when she got back to Southern California. And she did. Sent me an email, and in the email it said, uh, but the disparaging part of that weekend is that Mike and I broke up. And I made the mistake of reading that to my sponsor. <clears throat> and my sponsor said, call her up, ask her for dinner. Well, see, I know that what he wanted to do was to go to his sponsor and say, guess who's dating your, your ex-wife? <laughs> so I'm gonna play into that game anyway. See, I've got a better idea. <laughs> but he's persistent, and he keeps telling me, and so finally I called Debbie up and uh, asked her for dinner, and she says, well, I'm free Memorial Day weekend. Whew. I'm thinking, sounds good to me. <laughs> that was before I understood that she's got morals. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> She picks me up and she's got a schedule of things to do and uh, we're gonna go right down this schedule of things to do. I don't know if you ever noticed, but Debbie's gonna be organized. <laughs> and uh, 
she's talking to me, talking to me, driving along, talking to me, talking to me. I'm looking over there and thinking, hmm, she's pretty cute. <laughs> she just stopped talking. I might try and kiss her. <laughs> we get up on top of Signal Hill and she gets out of the car and I get out of the car and she walks toward me and I take her in my arms and I start to kiss her and she goes, so I got the signal on Signal Hill. <laughs> I flew southwest. Southwest flies out of here every 30 minutes. I got to get to the airport. <laughs> I, got, I got the message. And, uh, you know, when it, it, was, it was interesting. I mean, that was the message I got. Rejection. Total rejection, right? And that was not the message, but that was the, that's what I got. Of course... Brilliant mind like mine, cutting edge of modern thought. <laughs> well, we repaired that damage, and uh, turns out that uh, we've had a decent life as a result of that. It's, uh, we were married a year later, and uh, we were just coming up on celebrating nine years married, and uh, good life. I wanted to talk to you about... about uh, what's happened recently in my life. Got about a few minutes, so. Uh, I got involved with the local, local county jail, mainly because I had changed home groups and uh, I needed something else to do on Wednesday night. The only thing that was available was either the meeting that Debbie was going to and she didn't want me to go to her meeting, so. Uh, <laughs> That left me going to county jail, and I uh, didn't have anything better to do, so I went to county jail, and um, they don't have a meeting every week. And I'm thinking, well, they ought to have at least a meeting every week. How do you have an AA? You know, how do you have AA if you can't go to a meeting at least once a week? And here's a guy in county jail; they won't. So I decided, I decided, we're going to have a meeting every week, and. Uh, Okay, so I'm going to have to get a bunch of guys cleared. So I'll go in every week and I'll take one guy with me every week. I mean, once a week for each week of, week of the month. But I'm going every week. And uh, one week uh, I'm going on vacation and ask a couple guys to cover me who'd been doing it for years. And uh, they said, oh, yeah, we'll do that. And I come back and I go to my meeting on Wednesday night and... I mean, we had six or eight guys who were coming by this time, and nobody shows up but these two guys I've never seen before. And, uh, man, this is kind of strange. We had, I thought we had a thing going here. And come to find out, the two guys who I'd asked to go in didn't show up. And uh, so they said, the guys who were regulars got the message to me that, you know, I ain't gonna show up, they ain't gonna show up. Now, I haven't missed a Wednesday since. And uh, something happened to me. If you're gonna make a commitment, go every week. And uh, I started going to county jail every week. And they got tired of hearing the same old story that I tell, you know, week in and week out. And they actually, actually said, could we do something else? And I said, sure. <laughs> sure, what would you like to do? And they said, well, can we go through the book? Why not? So we started going through the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, we got to that point where it says uh, we listed people, institutions, and principles with whom we're angry. And I just said, 
Well, this is about that point in the book where if I was sponsoring you, I'd ask you to stop right there and make that list. And uh, then I usually say, you know, you can actually put down who it was and make a column of what they did and probably even how that affected you. And if you care to and you want to give it a try, go with, uh, try and work on that fourth column. What was your part in it? And uh, there's this guy who was in the meeting, Matt. And Matt said, I'll tell you what, I'll do that and have it ready for you next week. And I'm thinking, yeah, right. <laughs> this is county jail. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matt came back the next week and he said, uh, here's who I'm angry with. Here's what they did. Here's how it affected me. And basically, they were right. <laughs> but he did a four-step verbally in front of the rest of the guys in county jail. Well, this is totally unheard of to me. I've never, I mean, it's, it says one-on-one. -on -one. It doesn't say one-on-many. <laughs> and I'm thinking this is kind of strange. But as you listen to him describe each of his resentments and how it affected him and what his part in that was, you could watch the guys in that room change. And they did. And then hands would go up. And for the next two or three weeks, each one of them did their own resentments, came back and read it to the group. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. I was way over my head. <laughs> Well, if you read up to page 75, it says, you know, every twist of character, every dark cranny of the past, how are you going to do that with guys in jail? I mean, you can't do that in front of people. So I quickly accessed all the resources I had, and of course my sponsor, I had changed sponsors, and I got a guy who uh, was pretty active in corrections, and. Uh, he said, go to the head of the facility and ask him permission to meet one-on-one -on -one with these guys. Which I did. And he said, sure, we'll set it up. And we then had three contact rooms, and we had three guys from outside, and we did fist steps with these guys in county jail. To this day, it's my favorite meeting. That was four years ago. We've been through the book several times. We've rotated, we've kind of done the same type of thing. Taken, uh, we've been through the steps four different times. They're there long enough. We've got guys who got sober in that county jail. I've gone on to other institutions, gotten sponsors on the outside. Three of those guys go to my home group. Uh, it's just amazing. There was a time when I walked into that room and Julio was sitting there with his head in his hands and he'd never been to jail before, never been to prison, never been to jail. And he was a broken human being crying there as I walked in and he didn't believe he was alcoholic. He just 
showed up by accident. As it turns out, Julio caught the disease in county jail, Module C, <laughs> and has four years sober. And, uh, and he went through the process, moved on to another institution, and is doing well. And, uh, you know, it's, it, I told my wife it's like shooting fish in a barrel, and she said, well, I handled the gun. You can't shoot fish in a barrel. <laughs> I told her, shooting big fish in a small barrel. <laughs> But you know, here you have people who have gotten themselves into trouble and they are sober, by, not by choice necessarily, but when they do that, and you can carry a message to somebody who is so hungry for another way of life, taking a meeting into an institution like that is absolutely powerful. Uh, I've spent most of my sobriety sponsoring people on the outside, but working with those Confined is absolutely incredible. I hope you get the opportunity to do that. Thank you very much for my sobriety.